Boulder Rising, we have some very important topics to get in with you this morning. Brianna, do the honors. We have some breaking news for you. CNN chairman and, C uh, and CEO Chris Lake is reportedly out at the network and will be replaced in the interim by top executive Amy Intellis. CNN informed employees of the move during an editorial call this morning. Lick's parting comes in the week after a cringeworthy profile of the CEO appeared in The Atlantic, prompting Lick to apologize to CNN staff. Lick was also weakened by the network's town hall with Donald Trump, which drew ire from Democrats who slammed the network for platforming the former president. Though, as journalist Glenn Greenwald points out, CNN was in muddy waters well before Licht was hired, tweeting, media figures are flagrantly rewriting the history of CNN right before your eyes to make it seem as if CNN only started failing when Chris Licht was hired and demanded it stop being a DNC activist group. CNN was already in free fall and collapse when Licht was hired. Mm. Right. So... I think the story of Chris Licht, who was at CNN about a year, um, is correctly, or at least partly correctly, diagnosing some of the problems with the network without offering necessarily a solution. Um, a lot of the things he tried out didn't work. Obviously, the infamous pairing or trio of of uh, Don Lemon, Poppy Harlow, Caitlin Collins, what, which was his idea, was a complete disaster. The three did not get along well at all. They did. They, they didn't mesh well. Um, Don Lemon was very was <laughs> allegedly very um, uh, showed a lot of contempt for his uh, female uh, mm -hmm. co-host. Obviously, there was the past her prime moment. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of berating. Uh, when cameras weren't rolling, and then there was actually even some berating while cameras were rolling. Um, uh, just the different, the different kind of approaches they took. Don Lemon had a kind of, um, you know, how, how, how can we even be normalizing Republicanism and, and right. Trumpism that was sort of at odds with, with what Caitlin Collins and Poppy Harlow Yeah, it was purely ideological do. and yeah. no analysis right. whatsoever. But Chris Licht also then fired Don Lemon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he, Chris Licht seemed to take the view that CNN had lost too much um, uh, rapport with normal, moderate, and Republican and conservative people who were not going to turn on CNN anymore because it was just so relentlessly partisan, so, so obsessed with Trump and how Trump is a disease and a fascist and all of that. Um, in a way that was just so that was that had veered off course from CNN being the place you just turn on when there's news. Mm -hmm. you, you just want you know you know give it to me straight, Doc, kind of thing. Yeah. However, um, I, I don't know that he was really making steps to solve that issue or to because I'm not sure CNN was regaining credibility with conservatives in any meaningful way over the last year. So if it was just alienating the audience it did have of of resistance liberals and it was frustrating the staff that they were being told to be more moderate or and also you can be moderate and centrist and and then and then lose your perspective and actually not be fun to watch like we always right. talk about how if you're just Everybody has, has views and opinions and perspectives and if you're pretending you don't it actually makes for bad television Yeah, being being a cheerleader stop decide to stop cheerleading Democratic Party does not mean being moderate or centrist. It means understanding that there is a quadrant of that proverbial chart right. of where American political sympathies lie that is being unfulfilled. 
if you have one axis that it's about economic populism versus economic conservatism and one axis that's about social conservatism and social liberalism. We have socially conservative, economically conservative Republicans. Traditionally, we have socially liberal, economically liberal Democrats, ostensibly, mm -hmm. traditionally. And then there's these CNN-type liberals who think, well, the answer to our messaging problems is to be economically conservative and socially liberal. Mm -hmm. Zero people exist in that space. That's mm -hmm. the space where the brain geniuses who are thinking of things like uh, the CEO of J.P. Morgan running for president, that's what they occupy. They, they think that that's the Bloomberg presidency is going mm -hmm. to solve the American public's problem by occupying that space. But when you look at a scatter plot of where Americans lie, nobody's there. Where there is a cluster of people who are not being served by any of the, either of the two traditional groups, is this kind of economic populism, um, culture war, socially conservative area. And I don't know that any network has figured out how to appeal to that group of people. I also think that group of people is pretty undefined because even within that group, it's unclear what their priorities are. How much do you really care about some of the, the cultural stuff mm -hmm. as compared to the economic stuff? But the point is that they're unwilling to be economically populist. No corporate news show is really actually willing to be economically populist. So they do stunts, like having a town hall with uh, with Donald Trump that alienates Trump voters because there's clear hostility between the host of the debate and Donald Trump. There's an unwillingness to put Trump in a position where he's actually responsive to the Trump voters and the audience in a true town hall format. So it just looks like more antagonism between establishment conservatives like Caitlin Collins is at least perceived to be or, and the liberals at CNN and Donald Trump instead of actually having a sincere engagement with the kinds of economic populist ideas, good faith or not, that galvanized the public into supporting him in the first place in 2016. Until they learn that message, I don't know how many CEOs they're going to run through, but the CEO in and of itself isn't the problem here, in my view. Well, I mean, the CEO has tremendous power to hire new talent, replace old talent, um, you know, give marching orders to the team. I think a CEO who actually got it could do a lot of good. Perhaps, although I'm skeptical, honestly, that a network can draw, like it's television, can draw a lot of new viewers because, like, young people are not, they're not turning, they don't even have cable subscriptions anymore. Um, they're looking, they're, they're seeking, I mean, that's maybe what makes me skeptical of your, like, your quadrant theory. Like, are those people, people who turn on their, I guess if they're older people, maybe they're people who are watching TV, they're probably watching Fox News. Well, and they're I, not going to go over to see Well, the, the idea in part Or was, they're watching YouTube and they're on Rumble. That, and, that was part of the idea, yeah. I think, of moving to a CNN Plus, moving to a web-based subscription service is that you have some appreciation of the fact that people are getting their TV through other means, but they're still watching it. People are still watching Tucker Carlson clips, you know, whatever the mm -hmm. viral clip from The View is or whatever. They're just watching it on YouTube, which they're going to have to figure out how to monetize in different, in different sorts of ways, but they're, they're watching. So the question is, can you get a new cohort of younger viewers interested in what's being served up. You can't get around that being the, the crucial part of the equation. And the idea that they're not reaching out to popular YouTube celebrities that have already figured out the equation in some ways, that they're not doing more sorts of um, town, you know, town hallish format, man on the street type format where you're direct, you're engaging directly with real people. I personally love, I think the one of the best things that cable news shows do, because they have the resources to do it, is to get six to nine people off the street 
in a room and get their feelings on whatever debate just happened, you know, po mm -hmm. poll tested groups, just having an open conversation that's much more analytical yeah, and Yeah, those can be very agenda-driven, though, based on who they end up picking, right? I always end up kind of skeptical of, well, how did you pick these 12 people to answer these questions? Are these representatives, are these people you know to be supportive of whatever candidate or agenda the channel or the, the poll conducting person you wants that, to advance? You feel more that way about those survey groups than the hosts uh, who sit behind the desk and give their extremely no, it's the network. Same. No, it's the same. It's backing up the perspective of the host or whoever, I mean, whatever Frank Lutz type it person. Can. Certainly it can, but the point is that, find that me, is, Go find me nine DeSantis people to say we're done with Trump. But in practice, quite the opposite often happens. And you see in panel after panel, that the, recently they were trying desperately to find some people who said positive things about DeSantis. You could tell the slant of the channel was to try to say, oh, mo moderate, regular d Republicans want to get rid of Trumpism. And even at the, they were at pro-DeSantis events, people were like, ah, I like him. I like both of them, but I, I wish he wouldn't beat up Trump, and it's Trump's turn. No, I, see, I, saw, I, I watched a report on CNN about how conservatives are ready to leave Trump for DeSantis, where they interviewed a bunch of conservatives on the street they picked that, to me, I think were totally unrepresentative because they filtered them for people who thought that, even though and most I, don't And I saw the way, opposite. So to the point is that we know 100% if you're talking to the host, you're going to get that view. But if you talk to real people, sometimes you get reality breaking through. If you and the really point that I'm making people, is that structuring shows so that they talk to more real people is a good thing, and much better than having this cloistered world where you're only having the elite host control the show. Uh, right. I'm saying... Okay, I, I'm, I'm saying the elite host, sure, but the elite host, I think, often does control the show anyway, and those things can be a, a, a laundering and filtering the views of the host through a pretext of objective citizenry journalism, but point yeah, well, taken. Chris liked, it's, it's a pretty significant fall from grace. Remember, he was most recently Stephen Colbert's uh, late night uh, show executive producer. That show doing very well. And when he took this job, he uh, apparently said he did so because he felt it was a calling. It's interesting for someone to feel that way and to describe their motivations as being so strong without having more of a clear vision, it seems, as to the direction he wanted to, to take the show in. So we'll see what's up for him next. There is this uh, a group of interim folks, uh, senior executives, who are going to be mm -hmm. uh, steering the ship in the short term. But again, I don't think that anybody they they slot into this position is going to magically be able to write this ship I should unless the, they have this bigger cultural change. I should note the, the I think immediate uh, proximate cause of the firing is this long, I think it was like 15,000 word uh, profile of Chris Lick that was in uh, The Atlantic, mm -hmm. written by Tim Alberta, noted political journalist, um, who I, I think, who, he's a very good writer, fair, but I, I think often ends up taking down the, the person he's profiling. Mm. So even the idea to let Tim Alberta like follow you around and attend the meetings you're attending and watch you behind the scenes and watch how you're interacting in like this combative way with the staff. Like there's a lot of anecdotes about him fighting with Don Lemon or mm -hmm. saying like, what are you wearing or that kind of thing. Um, to, to not have the self-awareness to know that the piece of journalism that's going to be written about this will not be flattering. Um, to me, demonstrates catastrophically bad judgment. Yeah, it's hubris. It's the same kind of hubris that exactly. says, it's my calling to run CNN after right. coming from a late night show. Right. Yeah, The Atlantic is going to profile me. I bet it'll all be nice <laughs> things, and I'm going to send it to my mom and pin it on my refrigerator. <laughs> nope. More rising right after this.
Tucker Carlson posted episode one of his new Twitter show to the platform yesterday. The former Fox News host did not hold back when it came to bashing the mainstream media establishment, war hawks in Washington, D.C., or even Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Question is, who did it? Well, let's see. The Kokovka Dam was effectively Russian. It was built by the Russian government. It currently sits in Russian-controlled territory. The dam's reservoir supplies water to Crimea, which has been, for the last 240 years, home of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Blowing up the dam may be bad for Ukraine, but it hurts Russia more. And for precisely that reason, the Ukrainian government has considered destroying it. In December, the Washington Post quoted a Ukrainian general saying his men had fired American-made rockets at the dam's floodgate as a test strike. So really, once the facts start coming in, it becomes much less of a mystery what might have happened to the dam. Any fair person would conclude that the Ukrainians probably blew it up, just as you would assume they blew up Nord Stream, the Russian natural gas pipeline, last fall. And in fact, the Ukrainians did do that, as we now know. It's not like Vladimir Putin is anxious to wage war on himself. Oh, but that's where you're wrong, Mr. and Mrs. Cable News consumer. Vladimir Putin is exactly that sort of man, the sort of man who'd shoot himself to death in order to annoy you. We know this from the American media, which wasted no time this morning in accusing the Russians of sabotaging their own infrastructure. As of this morning, the video has raked in over 63 million views and reportedly 20 million views within the first 24 hours. So, Tucker, they are obviously discussing this dam uh, demolition uh, that uh, has a somewhat similar kind of narrative framing as Nord Stream with a lot of initial blaming on Russia and some people asking questions about whether that's actually uh, most likely along the lines that Tucker is doing there, asking whether, in fact, it was the Ukrainians. Um, so that is... You know, that's the kind of, um, I think that's a very valid line of inquiry um, and uh, the kind of, you know, narrative that the mainstream media is totally uninterested in telling this is like the best case for a Tucker type programming that actually asks these questions that most people are thinking and wondering, but the very pro-Ukraine, pro-Zelensky consensus in mainstream media is not willing to explore very carefully. Yeah, so let's get into some of the kind of brass tacks of this. It, the whole clip was about 10 minutes long, yeah. which in my recollection is somewhat shorter than his normal monologues in the Fox News context, and definitely shorter than the show in his entirety, yeah. because there's no, there was, at least for this first episode, no interview that portion of the show. might be about a monologue. Maybe it goes, it can go up to 12 minutes or I think so. It, some of them can go rather long. I, I've yeah. definitely watched monologues that were closer to 20 minutes long, but mm -hmm. I don't know if those were anomalous or not. So it, it Format-wise, you're already having that shift. I saw some commentators say that they thought that Tucker seemed less impressive. I think this was Taylor Lorenz, um, who said that without the Fox kind of graphics and infrastructure um, and formatting, that he seemed less impressive, uh, like a man sitting in a room with a camera that that's, wasn't that's distinguished. All, that's all we are. <laughs> no, but that's exactly the point that she was making, that it was indistinguishable from your average podcaster and is part of the magic of Tucker Carlson bringing the kinds of views that can be fringe but are very common on the internet into the mainstream. And is it still as powerful outside of that mainstream context? That Without I think the production values. No, like without having the 
platform of a mainstream show whose views often were not Tucker's views. So the magic of Tucker Carlson, is it really that he's saying what he's saying or more so that he's saying what he's saying on a mainstream news platform beamed into regular normie Americans' homes as opposed to people who are going on the internet to find whatever I thought Taylor, I saw that Taylor tweet. I thought she and other people making this criticism were essentially saying, no, it, it needs, what about the graphics and the B-roll and all that of kind of stuff, the sprucing it up, making it's it look both. good. It's both. So what do you think about both aspects of that? I mean, I don't know. I, I bet people who enjoy Tucker were probably also entertained and enjoying what they were watching on on the Twitter version obviously high production values help we I mean, we, we try to improve our show with like there's a nice little graphic has my name <laughs> on the screen right oh they just made it go away uh, all that kind of stuff makes it better it's important um, but ultimately I think the, the content is king and it, if it's the same it's the same content um, so there were so also I, these, I, I kind of so I don't don't agree basically. Yeah, there were these content criticisms as well. Um, Mehdi Hassan chimed in, noting that it was ridiculous in his view for him to have come out immediately talking about 9/11, um, trutherism, and aliens. Mm -hmm. uh, that was that was Mehdi's takeaway. Right, overlooking this very legitimate questions about how this dam was destroyed. The kind of good journalism, skepticism, and scrutiny well, that you would like someone like a Mehdi Hassan to be able to do on sure, his own show, but, but never does. specifically I mentioned the aliens and the 9-11 trutherism. He finished with some of that. I think we've got another clip. Let's play it. On the front page of the New York Times website this morning, there were five stories about Ukraine, as well as four stories apiece about Donald Trump, trans people, and climate change, the usual lineup. There was nothing at all about how an alien species is flying hypersonic aircraft over our cities. Not one word. So if you're wondering why our country seems so dysfunctional, this is a big part of the reason. Nobody knows what's happening. A small group of people control access to all relevant information, and the rest of us don't know. We're allowed to yap all we want about racism, but go ahead and talk about something that really matters, and see what happens. If you keep it up, they'll make you be quiet. Trust us. Yeah, I mean, he's getting at something I've complained about, the routine overclassification of government documents and secrets that, um, that, that you're not privy to, that we don't know what's going on, that our federal bureaucracy is totally out of control, and our law enforcement is totally weaponized. Um, now, I don't put as much stock in the alien disclosures as we talked about yesterday. I think you were, I think you were more excited about this than I was, the alien stuff. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm very, very skeptical, but, uh, but I agree that there should be more and total transparency about whatever the government Well, has. I mean, specifically what he said there was that you're allowed to talk about things like racism, which don't matter. But we are willing to talk about, we are, we are restricted from talking about aliens, which presumably do matter. And as much as I think it's perfectly plausible that aliens have landed and I don't, you know, I don't have any issue with talking about that, that sort of thing, I am rankled by the, by the zero-sum game framing of that, mm -hmm. as though it's a problem to be talking about racism. But it should, we should be spending more time devoted to talking about aliens. Moreover, he seems to critique the idea that there were five stories about Ukraine when the bulk of his own monologue tonight was, of course, about Ukraine. Now, a different angle than the New York Times right, or Washington Post. Right, calling BS on the dominant is narrative having, about but Ukraine. But the critique, as we heard just now in that segment, was not of the skew. Earlier in the, in the clip, he talks about the skew 
of the mainstream media being the critique. In this section, he's saying that they will only talk about these subjects. Five articles about Ukraine, that's a problem. Articles about trans issues and racism, that's a problem. I argue there, I agree that there are a lot of things the New York Times and these other magazines should be talking about. They should be talking about poverty. They should be talking about the fact that we have right. something in this country called um, uh, medical bankruptcy, which only exists in a country where you don't have universal health care and people's health care ability to go to the doctor is tied to their employment. That we have a student loan crisis where a huge percentage of student borrowers are saying they're frankly not going to be able to afford to make the payments that they're now being required by the Biden administration to resume in September. The fact that 74 percent of Democrats, Americans, I believe, don't want Joe Biden to run again, but we have a gerontocracy where we can't get a presidential candidate who's under 75 years old. Well, there are a lot of things That's that we should be talking about. That's a version of what about. Tucker is saying, is that the priorities of the mainstream media are totally misplaced, and they overly focus on the cultural uh, obsessions of a sliver of the population that are elite and wealthy and highly yeah, educated Robbie, and what, interested in— What I'm saying is while that top-level critique is accurate, instead of pointing us to genuinely economically populist concerns, he is steering us toward other culture war concerns. He's saying we need to be talking more about aliens and 9-11, and that's what— Ooh, aliens and— I mean, I, I don't agree on 9-11 trutherism at all. I don't know that that's culture war concerns. In fact, a lot of—I actually saw a lot of conservatives on Twitter complaining about the alien story because it's distracting from the culture war, saying that aliens get injected into the narrative every time culture warriors are making progress because it's distracting. So is Tucker— so, I don't, so Tucker Carlson's not in line with the broader Republican audience, you're saying? I, I'm saying on he's not a lot in line with these very online right-wing people who, uh, who were saying that. But again, most of, most of the show, the, what he spent on his Twitter show, the time he spent, was on, I, I, th I think you agree, a legitimate t Ukraine, the dam explosion, from a non-establishment uh, independent perspective that is actually cross-ideological, that is, this is the sus suspicions shared by um, very right-wing people and leftists and libertarians and independent people who know that mainstream coverage of what's going on in Ukraine has just been utterly uh, propagandistic and one-sided. And I think this is a, a important, legitimate thing to discuss that's not, that's not, oh, I'm not going to talk about economic populism because I'm obsessed with wokeness. This is an important thing. Yeah, and I agree with that. So. I don't know what else to say. I agree All with right. that aspect of it, but there are these other things that he's talking about, these other criticisms. So one of the other critiques that he got was, even if you disagree with Zelensky from a political perspective, he referred to him as sweaty, rat-like, uh, and a persecutor of Christians. Many Jewish commentators, including Matt Duss, who was uh, Bernie's for, uh, foreign policy guy, called this out. Um, saying that it was anti-Semitic. Specifically, Matt Des wrote, I don't care if his Earth does, populism gives you a little thrill. No decent or effective anti-fascist left can have anything to do with this anti-Semite. A number of others were resurfacing um, the classically anti-Semitic tropes that many people have, I think, forgotten in more recent history, but which do specifically link Jewish people to, you know, rat-like stereotypes and the shifty-eyedness and things like that in a way that does seem pretty damning. I mean, do you think those kinds of choices are purposeful on the part of Tucker Carlson? Do you think that that's a legitimate uh, pushback, even if you disagree with American foreign policy in Ukraine? I mean, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't uh, think uh, mocking people's uh, appearances is a generally good um tactic in general. Um, I didn't see that specific part of the clip, 
maybe it's playing into anti-Semitic tropes. I have no idea whether it is or not, but yeah, you shouldn't do that if that's what he's yeah, doing. Yeah, it's difficult. I, I mean, that, some, so some commentators have said, have looked at those aspects of it and said, well, this, this feels like it's being written by Stormfront. Remember, he had that controversy where one of his writers had to be let go at Fox News because they did come from one of the mm -hmm. um, explicitly alt-right right. um, media organizations, and even you know Fox News had to let them go. In a situation where, Fox, where Tucker Carlson is genuinely independent, are we going to see more collaboration with either people like that from that kind of background, language that is more reminiscent of what you find on those kind of platforms and not so explicitly on a place like Fox News? And is it going to make Tucker more effective, less effective, more credible, less credible, more credible with people who already sort of like him? You know, what direction is this going to go now that the format itself well, has look, changed? Well, okay, I'm not personally a big fan, as I've said, of mocking political figures' appearances because I think it's mean-spirited. Um, but there's no rule against that, and obviously Donald Trump is like the most mocked based on his physical appearance figure of like all time, including by very mainstream people. And I don't. And, sure. And it gets all worked. Although up I would say there's it. a difference between mocking someone's physical appearance because they look goofy in knee-high white boots, let's say, like Ron DeSantis or something like that, and playing on tropes that have been wielded to dehumanize people and which led to a genocide that killed millions of people. So, I mean, we saw uh, with one of the recent shooters, was it the Buffalo shooter, I believe, who had a manifesto that was filled with reams and reams of pages of physiognomies of, like, skulls and profiles of both black and Jewish people and ample explanations of why he thought these people were worth killing and why their lives were of no value. And then he went and he killed those people. So I will say that this isn't just saying, oh, I don't like Sarah Palin's lipstick or, mm -hmm. you know, Bill Clinton's looking really skinny these days. It, this is a little bit different, I think, in nature. If, in fact, you agree that he was playing on those kind of stereotypes, I'm deferring to others who are weighing in here, um, and I'm interested to see what the audience makes of this as well. Of course, we'll be seeing many more episodes of Tucker Carlson's show, and we will bring any new news on that front to you here on The Hill. More rising after this. Tara Reid, former Senate aide who accused then-Senator Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her while she worked as a staffer in his Senate office three decades ago, announced last week that she had moved to Russia because she feels safer there. Since Reid's interview with Russian state-run network Sputnik, the mainstream media published that she defected a characterization she and her lawyer strongly condemn. In a statement, Reid's counsel, Rada Sterling, denounced the headlines, writing, quote, Despite this week's tabloid headlines, she has not defected to Russia, nor is she seeking asylum. During a week-long trip to Moscow to oversee her book translation, she was told her life was in danger if she returned to the U.S. on advice she is staying on while we ensure her safety. Here to tell us firsthand about her experience is Tara Reid and her lawyer, Rada Sterling, a crisis manager and founder of Due Process International. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Tara, thanks for Tara, having us. It, it's, a, it's our pleasure, of course, to be able to have this conversation with you. Tara, let's start by talking about how you feel your move to Russia has been mischaracterized. You know, if this is not a defection, what is it and what prompted the move, this, this threat to your safety? Well, I think, Bree, you know, you were kind of front and center witness, as was Robbie, to how I was treated by the 
mainstream corporate media um, when I came forward in 2019 and 2020. Um, basically, I was just from the out the gate, I was called a Russian asset. I had no ties to Russia. I had no affiliations. Um, and then through 2020, I was attacked. I had personal physical attacks to my safety, to my family. You know, I was threatened with my life. Um, I had a break in. My daughter's house was broken into. Um, she was threatened. She had to get a restraining order. My horse was being threatened to kidnap. I mean, it was a mess all of 2020. I couldn't get work. People would tell me that um, I was a security risk. And so I finally got a job with RT doing some op-eds. And I was very, I did not conceal it. I was very open about it. Talked about, you know, working at RT, it wasn't very much money. And, um, and then I went forward with, with, with that um, and still continued to get hassled and just called a Russian agent and all these horrible things. And eventually, um, my book came out 2020 in COVID and many authors had trouble. And on top of mine, mine was suppressed. And as you have reported out, um, the FBI and DOJ worked on suppressing people on Twitter and other social media. On Facebook, for instance, my name in 2020, Tara Reid, was called election interference. Hmm. Um, so they kept deflecting the conversation from the allegations I made of being hmm. raped in 1993 by Joe Biden when I worked for him and no Russians were present. Um, and coming forward about that, they kept trying to deflect the conversation and I got caught up in that Russian sort of narrative. So recently my book um, was being offered to have international translation and that's what brought me to Moscow. Um, and I went ahead and went to Moscow while I was there. I had several conversations with people who are experts in the field who gave me a warning um, that they were very concerned about my safety. Yeah, can you, could, could you elaborate on that to whatever extent you're possible? Were the people warning you that you were in trouble? Um, was it other, was it? Russian people or people back in the States? It was Americans. Law it, was, it was Americans. Yeah. Law enforcement? It was Americans or... that would know. It was Americans that would know. And bear in mind, too, you know, the physical threats were already have happened and they started amping up again in 2023. And I, you know, I don't know if you saw the viral tweet where I said, you know, look, I'm not suicidal. I'm not going to have an accident. That was because I was getting physically targeted again. And um, it was during that time I was talking to Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and did an interview and I was set to testify. Um, so that was all happening simultaneously. Um, so it was based on that, but also they gave me a specific warning about a possible Interpol red notice, which I didn't really, I don't know international law and I think Rada could speak more eloquently and describe what that means, but it was, you know, mm -hmm. unsettling. I talked with Matt Gates, and he just, he, you know, he didn't give me advice. He gave me information. He basically said, Tara, you know, I'm concerned for your physical safety. So and that's who you're referring last... to is, 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 that, is, is uh, political uh, elected representatives who have warned you about your safety. Correct. Okay. Yeah, um, Roger, Roger, maybe and... you want to jump in uh, here and elaborate yeah. on exactly what the nature of that threat of the, the Interpol report. Talk to us about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tara received information from former intelligence or members of the community uh, that she was either at her life may have been at risk and definitely her freedom and that she may have been reported to the Interpol Red Notice database, which if she had left Russia at that time would have likely led to her arrest en route back to the US in Turkey, where they could have kept her indefinitely, essentially facing unknown charges or unknown allegations. Now, Interpol is regularly used by authoritarian states as a, a means to harass people abroad, to have them arrested and subject to extradition proceedings, even if that country knows that they're not going to win. So it could definitely lead to her arrest. So we've already lodged filings with Interpol to find out if she's on uh, the database. And if she is, I've also lodged uh, preemptive um, documents that would prevent them, hopefully, from accepting a notice from the US in the future. Now, if Tara had returned to the US, she was extremely concerned that uh, she would be detained potentially until after the next election. So, Red, I just want to make sure I understand, do you have any sense of what charges, what, what basis they would have retained Tara? And moreover, is the feeling that there could not have been a direct flight back to the United States, that the concern was being interceded in Turkey or wherever else a layover would have happened? Uh, I th there was no direct flight back to the US, so she would have to go via a third party country where she could have been detained. Alternatively, she could be detained in the US under, um, it, it could be anything. These days we've seen the way that the authorities have weaponized um, the justice system there for political gains. So they may have arrested her with some allegation that she is a Russian agent or that she has, um, you know, she's a domestic terrorist or anything to that effect. And they don't really need to provide that evidence in order to detain her for lengthy periods of time. So I think anyone when faced with that risk would say, mm -hmm. do I really want to go back right now? Or do I want to stay here and see whether my lawyers can get to the bottom of it, whether I can perhaps be assured protection when I testify at Congress about this very weaponization and about uh, what happened with Joe Biden in the 90s. And I think at this point, Tara had really no option but to stay in Russia. So it's it's more, um, you know, when you describe feeling un, uh, or being explicitly warned that you, you would not necessarily be safe returning to the country. It's not... It, it, the safety aspect of it is more that that government forces either on your way back to the U.S. or even at the U.S. you have some sense that they might be after you, not like a like a your life is in danger because a third party or something is is coming to kill you or something. It's it's actually a, a government threat of arrest and detention. It's it's both actually. You know, I've been physically targeted, Robbie, and you know, like the other day, um, one of the FBI whistleblowers, the FBI said to a congresswoman, they couldn't guarantee that that whistleblower wouldn't be killed. Um, he was testifying against Biden about the bribery case. Um, so these are very serious. I mean, I've been targeted physically several mm -hmm. times. I don't know by who. You know, I made police reports like one does. I, I actually went to federal. Um, you know, law enforcement when it first happened in 2020, not knowing that they were actually going after me. And also remember that I have a sealed case that we still don't know what it is with a grand jury impaneled, and it's been sealed for three years, and they can indict on whatever it is at any time. Hmm. I think, Tara, just to try to raise, I think, some of the questions that uh, more skeptical audience members might have, 
They might ask, well, given that you have been the victim of some threats or attacks in the past, and that so much of that centered around the events of 2020 and people who were frustrated that you raising your allegations at that time, and of course you had raised them many, many years in advance, but the allegations coming up at that point was going to threaten Joe Biden's presidential chances, et cetera. Given that that was kind of the temporal locus of all of that activity, why now do you feel as though there is a level of threat that justifies or re might require you to extend your time in Russia? And also, why Russia as opposed to some other countries, given the, the subtext of what it means to stay in Russia in America's current political climate? Well, you know, to answer your question fully, um, I was here for seven days, right? I, I mean, I literally only packed seven days with the clothes. So I don't even have a coat. Um, and I had been so happy because I got this book, you know, deal arranged where I was having my book translated no result, and then another additional book accepted for next September. So I was thinking I could go back and forth between America and Russia. Um, I've just never bought into the Russophobia and the narrative because as you know, Bria, most of it has been like the Steele dossier was turned over. It was false. It was fake. Um, all of this has been fake. I mean, Russia is a capitalistic country like the United States. They don't want to be our enemy. Um, we're not in a war officially with them. So why are they considered, why are they calling it defection or an enemy nation? So really what this is more about, it's not even about that. It's more about, I just wanted to testify before Congress about Joe Biden and what happened in 1993. And I have been terrorized and marginalized to the point where I literally sought sanctuary because for me to fly home could have meant me walking into a jail cell where, as you know, the, the new laws allow them to hold people for several months without charges and without counsel. Mm. So that would have been very convenient for Joe Biden, wouldn't it? Yeah, we have, you know, commented, I've commented on the show many times about how uh, I, I believe you were treated so differently from other people who made Me Too um, accusations uh, in, in the reception you got from the mainstream media, uh, a kind of automatic skepticism that was just not extended to so many of these other instances where, where you know, where it was automatic belief and you, it has to be, the burden is on to disprove it, where in your case it was, it seemed like the media was operating in a more, well, no, the burden is on her to prove it. We're not going to automatically believe it. Um, so I, I, you know, I absolutely understand and I, I witnessed that uh, total um, discrepancy. Do you think, um, so... Do you, so do you plan, do you expect you're going to be staying in Russia for some time now? And are you still in contact with Representative Matt Gates or anyone else of that kind vis-a-vis -vis what your situation might be here if you, if you were to return? Do you have so, someone, you know, contact in government, maybe someone like a political representative who could arrange for you to return and feel that you wouldn't be under the threat of arrest? That's a good question. I'll let Rada address it, um, but I'll address this portion of it that, yes, we're still communicating with um, Representative Matt Gates. Um, I still wish, and I'll, she'll explain the legal process of doing that, of testifying before Congress. I will not be bullied. I'm not going to be marginalized. I'm, I am going to testify. And Robbie, just, and, and Bree, just on a human level, you know, and Bree knows this, I went to Bernie Sanders, AOC. I went to these representatives before I went public for help. No one helped me. 
and no one's really helping me now. Mm. And and look at my life. It's been they took a wrecking ball to my life, a wrecking ball. My life was destroyed, and I'm now facing, you know, my daughter, my pets. I don't know when I'll ever see them again. So mm. for me to make this decision, you know, it had to be serious because it's life altering, and I'm, you know, and I don't know what's going to happen. So I'll let Rod is, you know, you know. We, we understand it, and we so appreciate you uh, being willing to speak about uh, about your situation. Um, yeah, Raja, please jump in and and maybe give your perspective yeah. on how a return could be. Um, uh, facilitated, um, ideally. When, when will you find out about whether Tara's, you know, on an Interpol list or any other kind of list that would jeopardize her travel back to the United States? Now, unfortunately, with Interpol, there are very slow working mechanisms. So they would respond to us within four months is what they allow themselves. And we'll know at that point. But it's not just the Interpol warrant that we're concerned about. We can deal with that. If she's listed on Interpol, we'll have her removed. And that takes away that international risk, so to speak. Um, it's more what would happen if she returned to the US. And right now, what I'm seeing is she's been forced into a position. Tara's been forced into staying in Russia. This was not her choice. She has been forced into that position. And now what we're seeing is even the fact that she's there, not by choice, is being weaponized. If we look at the headlines of this week, we're seeing that she defected. She must have always been a Russian spy, a Russian asset. We're seeing articles come out where journalists have received um, comments and opinions from, you know, former intelligence officers saying she is was an asset. This is probably a Russian uh, agent, or if she's not right now a Russian agent, she probably will be, just by the fact that she's in Russia, she'll be recruited. So that's putting her at serious risk. They didn't reach out to us and ask us for a comment. They didn't reach out to Tara and say, what about these rumors about you defecting to Russia? They just printed this opinion. And to me, that looks like an intelligence operation designed to discredit Tara and to put her further at risk of actually being charged with a crime like espionage or, or similar. Or now that she's in Russia, you know, the, these rumors about violating sanctions and all sorts of things. So they're actually compounding her risk and making her feel even less safe to return to Russia. So so we need to be doing a lot of work in the US to uncover this sealed indictment against her. We don't know what that is. And they could arrest her at any time, uh, especially with the upcoming election. So right now, she's definitely not safe. And we're working towards trying to get some assurances. We've been liaising with uh, various, um, you know, Matt Gates and other people to see what sort of protection they might be able to offer or assurances. And we've seen you know, we've seen the response that Tara should not feel at risk, but the fact that that response is even coming from that department is telling in itself that her profile is raised up so far and is being reviewed by intelligence agents in the United States who could be formulating uh, unfair cases against her to lead to her wrongful arrest. Um, so right now, on legal advice uh, from, from myself and a U.S. attorney, Jonathan Levy, we are saying you are definitely not safe right now to return. Yeah, and no yeah. other country, Russia is the safest place for her to be. If she went to a European country or uh, Turkey, for example, the U.S. can actually get her arrested there or make a, an extradition request and she'd be locked up while she's fighting against that unfair extradition request, even if she ultimately won it. Yeah, right. We did just cover yesterday a story of a gray zone, uh, gray zone journalist who was detained in London um, and, and interrogated for hours uh, because, on some level, there was some skepticism about his reporting and accusations of a similar nature about him being a Russian asset, et cetera. So it certainly isn't um, 
uh, a, a cynical uh, or, or paranoid uh, concern at all. It is happening. I guess I think the question that people are going to have is, you know, how did it come to be that this framing, if, if it was your choice to extend your trip in Russia until you could guarantee that you weren't on an Interpol warrant list, or to raise the profile of your concerns, uh, the threats to your freedom, uh, such that if the government, if, if the United States or if the government tried to intercede and did keep you in custody, then there would be a big international to do, and at the very least, they would have to justify it in a way that could be very embarrassing on the public stage. It seems like you have accomplished that on some level, right? It seems like now there is enough tension being paid to this, to your point, Rada, that it, do, do you feel more safe at this time saying, well, I could travel because the United States would have a hard time justifying my detention and would lend credibility to my claim that I am being targeted? No. In, in a sense, I, I in a sense, so I, I would say that in a sense, raising this issue will fight back a little bit against them. And hopefully they will see this as a huge red flag not to further intimidate her. But in, it could have actually been part of their plan to keep Tara in Russia, where they could then divert attention onto the whole Russian element of it, rather than on the allegations themselves. And in that way, they've almost won, at least in the uh, Democrat media. But that's the issue, right, Rada? So people are going to say, well, if you felt unsafe coming back to the United States, then why Russia, given how you know that's going to be framed? And is it possible at this point to go to another country with, which, with whom there is no uh, extradition relationship with the United States to cut mm -hmm. against the presumption mm -hmm. of collusion and all of the kind of Russia, Russia-phobic accusations um that there are? Unfortunately, even countries that don't have an extradition treaty with the US does not mean that you won't be extradited. At any time, you can make an extradition request regardless of whether there's a treaty in place. So yeah. Russia really right now is the safest place. She's already there. And uh, we would recommend that she stay there and not travel until we've sorted it out. Mm. Tara, I want to give you uh, yeah. the final word. Um, if you, you, the, the narrative is that you have defected to Russia and that this, you know, from a mainstream media perspective, they're saying this um, justifies the skepticism they've had all along of the things that you've said, the experience you related, the horrific experience you related uh, having to do with Joe Biden all those years ago. Uh, what, what do you want to say to those critics that say this shows that we were right because she's, she, we, we said this was a, this was a Russian-based smear and now here is this person residing in Russia so this 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 bears out our criticism I, again that's not coming from me I want to give you an, a, ch a chance to address the people in the in other media outlets who are saying that I understand um, you know what I want to say is that that there's been a huge coordinated effort um, at great expense by the Democratic National Committee and the Biden administration to silence suppress what happened in 1993 no Russians were there when I was sexually assaulted by Joe Biden at work at the Congress, you know, that was Senator Joe Biden that did that. I have tried, I went forward then in 1993 and filed, you know, the sexual harassment and wanted to file the, the more information about the sexual assault. I tried to get help. I tried to get help in 2019. I tried to get help in 2020. And this is the result. I'm here. I was here for a book deal. You know, there's a lot of disinformation about Russia. It's a beautiful country. They've given me sanctuary. And, um, you know, and I've sought, you know, I wasn't planning on seeking asylum. Um, but 
my circumstances necessitate me being safe. And that came directly from a U.S. you know, member of Congress, as well as other people, experts that would know, not just me. So I, I made this decision. It was a very grave decision. It was very thoughtful. Um, but while I'm here, I'm going to do my best, you know, to we're going to prefer Congress is what it's called so that I can testify remotely. And, you know, at this point, my life was really wrecked, right? But I really want this playbook to not work anymore. Because if I allow them to silence me and destroy me, they will keep doing this to every single whistleblower. So mm -hmm. at this point, I'm trying to do this for the people behind me and um, that are trying to come forward. And I mm -hmm. hope that that works. You know, I hope I'm able to testify before Congress. Tara, just to ask quickly, and maybe Rada, you know something about this as well. Did Matt Gates give any corroborating evidence or say anything specific about how he's aware that you might be threatened by the U.S. intelligence agencies or, or what have you? Uh, Tara, <laughs> you were in uh, oh, communication with Matt. Yeah. He told me directly over the phone, right? like I was in a phone conference with him. And I spoke directly with legal counsel and with uh, Matt Gates. And when I was direct in a direct conversation with him, he very clearly told me that he was very concerned, not just with, he couldn't do anything about like um, immunity. He, he gave me that information. Like he did, cause he didn't know what cases they were bringing. It's sealed. Mm. But he did say, you know, Tara, I'm really concerned about your physical safety. Your, but, you know, I'm worried for you. Tara, Tara I guess the, and, the question is, yeah. Why, what is the basis of Matt Gates' concern? Because, you know, one could say, you know, I, I, I would be worried about you, generally speaking, just because of the nature of your allegations and the nature of the political climate in 2020. But the idea of it coming from a sitting congressperson suggests that he is privy to knowledge about what's happening behind the scenes that would raise the generalized concern level to something closer to an immediate threat. So I wonder if, if he said anything to give you confidence that he's speaking to some specific um, pending threat against you as opposed to speaking more generally about kind of the political climate and third party threats and things like that? I think you would have to ask him directly. That's what he told me on the phone. And that's where you ended the conversation. And, um, you know, you've seen now uh, the Congress, you know, talking, uh, other members of Congress talking about other whistleblowers having the same um, conundrum, having the same problem of physical, their physical safety being threatened. So two of them right now. One of them is trying to also testify, I think, remotely. Is really scared. And then the other one was the one I mentioned earlier that just came out where the FBI said, look, we can't guarantee their safety, that they won't be killed. Yeah, well, so we... I think what we need to focus the energy on is Biden. Why yeah. is our government operating like a mafia state? Why yeah. is Joe Biden allowed to intimidate, suppress, and control the narrative so much that people are afraid to testify truth? That's what has to be. Those are the questions. Uh, we will be, yeah, we'll be following up with uh, Representative Gates and really trying to get to the bottom of uh, whatever um, illegal threat uh, you might be facing because you know, this should still be the United States and everyone able to express dissent consistent with the First Amendment and all the other rights um, yes. you should be granted. Um, Raja, thank you for joining us. And Tara, thank, thank you, you so much for be being willing to speak with us about your situation and hopefully um, shed more light on what's going on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. On his podcast.
reacted this week. Joe Rogan hailed Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s position on the COVID-19 vaccine and blasted the media for working to keep him quiet. Here's a bit of that. And they'll say that Bobby Kennedy is spreading misinformation where everything he said, you can verify. Everything he said is true, yeah. but there's no money in agreeing with him. The amount of money that these news or organizations, supposed news organizations get from being on the side of the pharmaceutical companies and being in their good graces is millions and millions of dollars in advertising revenue. Mm. And they have a very specific mandate. And then in a sit-down interview with The Daily Wire's Jordan Peterson, RFK Jr. not only praised Rogan and former Fox News host Tucker Carlson, went so far as to say that podcasts offer insurgent candidates a platform and will ultimately decide the 2024 campaign. Let's listen. Tucker is 10 times what CNN is, you know, gets, and, and Rogan's audience is potentially 10 times what Tucker was getting. So I think the I think the podcasts have the capacity this election for reaching people and allowing you know sort of dissident and insurgent candidates like myself to end run the corporate media monolith and to reach large numbers of Americans without going to onto the networks. So I think that's obviously true about the second half of that. Not all podcasts are made the same. Joe Rogan's podcast is a media juggernaut, the likes of which very few independent or corporate media outlets have managed to I can't to overstate the importance of web-based alternate platform <laughs> news shows enough. They are the future. They are the deciders. I mean, they, they are. And remember back in 2020. We, we are the deciders. <laughs> okay, all right. We get it, Robbie. Remember back in 2020, um, when Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan, or he was invited on Joe Rogan, there was a huge media backlash, I think in part because there was a recognition about how that was an end run around the mainstream media. And at the same time that all of the establishment candidates claimed to find it to be distasteful because some of Joe Rogan's beliefs were not Bernie's beliefs or not progressive beliefs at all, it turned out that every other candidate, or many of the other leading candidates, including Joe Biden, were furiously trying to get on Joe Rogan's show, and Joe Rogan wouldn't have them <laughs> on. And Joe Rogan talked about Donald like, Trump too. He said he wouldn't past. have Donald Trump on. Right. So you know, there is something that is is uh, democratizing about independent media because the gatekeeping that happens in mainstream media cannot happen. At the same time, of course, there are independent people who can make their own decisions, which means a different kind of ideological narrowing. Effect Effect can happen mm -hmm. as well. Joe Rogan, I think, is popular in part because he does occupy this kind of fluid ideological middle ground where he is at times more culturally conservative, but not that culturally conservative, just more kind of normy, I would say, and has these moments of mm -hmm. being genuinely economically populist and left. He was someone who said he would vote for Bernie Sanders, et cetera. And that's where a lot of Americans are, in that, again, the corner of the pie graph that doesn't get represented by mainstream news. So there is something to that. Right. I, I will say the point Joe Rogan made there about that there's no money in agreeing with RFK Jr. strikes me as a little funny, because obviously that, like, Joe Rogan agrees with RFK Jr. <laughs> and is, like, the most successful podcaster mm -hmm. of all time and is making a killing. And then, you know, Joe, uh, uh, RFK Jr. is on with Jordan Peterson, who's uh, a, a commentator for the Daily Wire, which is, like, this super successful um, 
conservative media organization that has tons of money. It, it was prepared to throw Steven Crowder $50 million, which he laughed at as not, not even enough. So while I absolutely agree with the overarching point that, yes, the mainstream media is very bought into positions that are taken, you know, that overlap with what the pharmaceutical industry wants in ways that I think can be harmful and structure the conversation, although usually not exactly because of direct advertising pressure, but just because of like the, ideo the ideology in my, I, I disagree, let me fin finish my point and then you can say what you think is wrong with it, but mostly it's just an ideological predilection toward the same kind of, the, the elite um, view over, happens to align with the everybody needs to get vaccinated, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I see the, you know, the point he's making about the power of money and, and, and mainstream media. There is also money being made in being critics of that. You can be successful. Um, you're, you're, we, I, we can't all pretend we're just like these dissident voices screaming in the darkness without it, you know, brave truth tellers, not like that can also be lucrative and profitable. When your critique is superficially, even substantively counterculture and anti-establishment, but doesn't call for any changes that are actually threatening to the establishment, you are likely to find a lot of people with a lot of money that are willing to fund your ideological project, your media project, because you don't actually challenge their ability to make money under the system as it currently exists. And so while there is obviously a lot of money to be made by people who brand themselves as the intellectual dark web or heterodox thinkers, and there's a whole media culture about that, mm -hmm. which I am engaged in and a part of in some small way, there's a difference in terms of how much money people earn and how much of a platform they have between people who are saying, you know, Biden is bad and mandates are bad, et cetera, but who aren't advancing a kind of politics that would go to the heart of the pharmaceutical industry, cutting subsidies to the pharmaceutical industry, making a critique of how it is the Democratic Party and Republican Party both take millions of dollars from pharmaceutical lobbyists every year, et cetera. And this is something that, I'm sorry, Bernie Sanders used to say all the time. You know, you have to look at who somebody's enemies are and who they're coming after and who they're not coming after. And, you know, I, this is part of why I do appreciate RFK Jr., because he does make, I think, a more substantive critique than most that are kind of in this broader universe. He said on his Twitter spaces the other day, specifically, that there was this moment where Democrats historically did not take as much money from the pharmaceutical industry. They were critics of it. They tried to pass various kind of health care reforms. But then when Obama tried to pass Obamacare, RFK Jr.'s critique was that he had to make a compromise to get it through Congress. He nego he, he, the compromise was no negotiation over um, health care, uh, over um, pharmaceutical prices. This hugely is, it's popular to neg have negotiation. Every other country does it. It's why insulin is a tenth of the price in Canada, et cetera. But he threw the people under the bus to get Obamacare passed. And from that point on, made an unholy alliance, I think those were his words, between the Democratic Party and the pharmaceutical industry. And he talked specifically about how much av pharmaceutical advertisements you see now that was previously prohibited in for most of American history, it is now allowed. He talked about why it is that you see advertisements for you know, Raytheon and defense companies on Morning Joe, and it's how it's not because anybody who's watching Morning Joe over their cup of coffee is gonna buy a ballistic missile, but it's because there is this relationship 
uh, between the people with money and being able to control these media enterprises. And independent media, if it's not really independent because it's relying on ad dollars, is subject to those same kinds of things. You brought up the Steven Crowder example. Steven Crowder had his blow up because his prospective employer said, well, if you get canceled by YouTube, if we can no longer make money off of you and sell YouTube ads based on your show, we're going to have to pay you less money, which from a business perspective is perf perfectly reasonable. But that illustrates to you how it is that there's always these um, tensions between the financial incentives that are causing these shows to be so successful and the content and free speech desires on I the mean, other side of it. All, okay, but there are always financial incentives. I mean, you can be just somebody out on your own making videos. Uh, your your model is you have subscribers or something. I mean, if you if you go against what they think, if you infuriate them constantly, then they're going to stop subscribing. And you're not like it, it, it's not charity, right? This is, this is news and entertainment. We're all we're it's part sure. of a business. Sure, there are, there are those kinds of incentives right. as well. But I think there's a very different thing. You know, my point was you can raise money, you can be very successful by yeah. advancing these anti-mainstream ideas. And there's tons of examples of people doing that. I think that's true. I just, I'm just saying that there's limits, and when advertisers are involved, it becomes less, mm -hmm. you know, I'm Brianna, and my audience isn't going to like it if I say uh, capitalism is good, actually, so mm -hmm. I'm going to stay away, you know. <laughs> or maybe my audience won't like it if I say, oh, I went on a shopping spree and spent money that you think is inappropriate given that I'm talking about, you know, mm -hmm. socialism and redistribution. Let's say that's a more likely sure. example. Sure. <laughs> um, I see you. I see you. I see you shopping over there. You know, you know so, uh, you know, that, I think that's a very different thing than me saying I'm running advertisements for JP Morgan's credit card services, or I'm running advertisements for, you know, something that is ideologically antithetical to everything that I do. And, and I think that has an effect. And I think RFK Jr. agrees that it has an effect. Um, and that can exist even in independent media. The, the incentives are different. I'm just saying there's no escaping that at the end of the day, you're relying on the kind of integrity of the person involved, plus all of the financial incentives that are heaped onto their shoulders. Sure. Well, former President Trump and GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump seemed to take a page from RFK Jr.'s playbook yesterday. He released a statement announcing his Agenda 47, a campaign to tackle the growth of chronic illness and health issues, especially in children, writing, quote, too often our public health establishment is too close to big pharma. They make a lot of money, big pharma, big corporations and other special interests, and does not want to ask the tough questions about what is happening to our children's health. What do you make of this? Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's uh, Trump uh, is probably perceiving that RFK Jr. is getting a lot of pickup from echoing some themes that Trump himself has echoed. Um, although Trump, of course, famously has been was responsible for Operation Warp Speed and has not shied away from celebrating that uh, he's, he'll even tell audiences of right wing people who like yeah. Trump, except for what he's done on the vaccines, and he'll say, okay, that's, I, I watched him do this, he say, okay, that's your perspective, but remember that there are millions of people who desperately wanted the vaccine and were happy to take it as fast as possible, and I never said it should be forced on them, I'm not for any mandates, but uh, it, it providing people that potential if they wanted to, to do it was very important. Um, and yeah. honestly, that, and that's a pretty good, I think that's a perfectly yeah. fine uh, message to Look, have. If, but. if Trump can inject some nuance into the conversation, <laughs> Trump can jab some nuance oh. into the conversation about um, public health by being someone with the position of having 
fulfilled a public health need at the same time as acknowledging that some of the public policy mm -hmm. um, follow-ups were not necessarily well-tailored. That's a good thing. Now, it could be that his audience just turns on, on him and he doesn't inject nuance into it at all. But I do also think that the, the broader point of saying, I'm going to offer something affirmative to solve a problem that exists, which is our children's health issues, is exactly the kind of thing that he needs to start doing so that his entire personality is that I'm being prosecuted by the state. Because mm. as we talked about in another segment, you know, Unless there are some of these red herrings, uh, or some of these smoking guns, rather, that he and Comer and others purport to exist in some of the documents that have not yet been disclosed, he's going to run out of rope on his ability to make a lot of that for the next 18 months into the election or however long it is. He's going to have to say, remind people of what his affirmative agenda is instead of just doing grievance politics for the next year and change. Mm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. New edition of the Twitter Files is out, this time from journalist Aaron Mate. Now, according to Mate, the FBI aided a Ukrainian intelligence effort to ban Twitter users and collect their data. In March 2022, an FBI special agent sent Twitter a list of accounts on behalf of the SBU, Ukraine's main intelligence agency. The accounts, the FBI wrote, are suspected by the SBU in spreading fear and disinformation. In an attached memo, Ukraine's SBU provided a list of accounts that it alleged had been used to disseminate disinformation and fake news to inaccurately reflect events in Ukraine. It then asked Twitter to block these Twitter accounts and provide their user data. In response to the FBI, Twitter agreed to review the accounts but raised concerns about its inclusion of American and Canadian journalists, e.g. Aaron Mate, we've had on the show before. Now, the FBI declined to answer Aaron's question about its aid to Ukrainian intelligence censorship efforts. Quote, while we appreciate your inquiry as a matter of practice, we do not confirm, deny, or otherwise comment on specific interactions, nor confirm the veracity of correspondence, the FBI wrote. But we're able to see the correspondence here. It's clear as day. And we, we have talked about this before. Uh, I think we talked about it with Lee Fong, had did some reporting on how similar requests were made of Facebook. We may have even discussed these exact requests being made to Twitter, but I think without the knowledge that they specifically referenced Aaron Mate, an independent journalist whom we've had on the show before. Um, these requests were, were sort of were relayed to Twitter through the FBI. They were made by Ukrainian intelligence. Clear requests for censorship based on alleged disinformation and spreading of fear. And with a new, <laughs> a new censorship just dropped, fear-based censorship. Um, interestingly enough, and, and I, I think this is, a, this is a point I've made a, a number of times, but just it keeps getting more evident, that there was pushback at Twitter, including by Yoel Roth, who was initially the, like, the villain of the Twitter files. Mm -hmm. It just is not fair. He tells them that unless you give us evidence that these accounts are specifically deceptively tied to government actors, like... Russia is like funding this person or something, we're not going to take action. We're not going to just get rid of Canadian journalists because you don't like what they're saying. Right. I think it's pretty think clear with there. A really important point. <laughs> it's also worth noting that this is not the, the result of new Twitter files releases from Elon Musk. Of course, as we've covered extensively, Elon Musk ended the Twitter files program now a couple of months ago after getting into a online fight with Matt Taibbi about the fact that Matt Taibbi also publishes on a 
I guess, ostensibly competitor website, but not really. They Twitter and Substack have very different functions. Regardless, um, and because of that interpersonal dispute, this incredibly important journalistic enterprise has been shut down. I guess it's not as important to Elon Musk as his personal dispute with uh, Taibbi. Therefore, this is continued investigations into the files that they already have, which, of course, only go up to the time at which Elon Musk took over the uh, the, the company. So we're getting this, this continued reporting on events in the spring of 2022, which are all very well and good. But as we continue to see Yoel Roth do the right thing in these instances and say, we're not actually going to succumb to your censorship request, which, by the way, is... Ukrainian intelligence telling American intelligence to censor people, that chain of events is also just incredibly untoward and upsetting. But we're not getting any new information about what's happening under the current Twitter regime, which has been in place for now the bulk of the conflict with Ukraine. And we can only hope, given the lack of transparency about what's going on now, that there is someone there who is still creating a barrier to these kinds of requests at the organization. Yeah, and that's a, that's a huge shame because there's more work clearly needs to be done to understand the extent of this very pernicious efforts, by, again, by our own FBI that should understand. It is totally improper for them to filter requests from a foreign government that that is that does not have the same kind of First Amendment values. We, you know, we've seen this with Zelensky, who suspended opposition um, media organizations, who has taken many illiberal steps with respect to free speech and free expression in the country. Um, you know, raising the specter of what we're even fighting for or assisting them to fight for, if if not to defend liberal values. We're being told that. Ukraine is, you know, holding. Obviously, Russia is the aggressor, but is illiberal and is you know, violating people's rights and and all of that kind of thing, and which I think is absolutely manifestly true. But we can't, you know, we, we can't be for we can't just suspend rights during a crisis because then you don't really believe in these rights, and then they're the governments of the world are hesitant to give these rights back when the crises pass because they never yeah. seem to pass. Yeah. Um, so we should sure. not we should not be going along with the kind of censorship that exists in virtually every other country. Yeah, it's it's, the, it's yeah. the shock doctrine 101 is what Naomi Klein wrote about. It's how we got so many of these um, post 9-11 infringements on our personal freedoms. And it is, it is very concerning. And again, just so concerning that the kind of reporting that enabled us to know that this was going on and the disclosures of the Twitter files that enabled us to know this was going on has come to such an abrupt abrupt end as a project. And it's very valiant of the former Twitter files journalists like Aaron Maté to keep going through the files and Maté to keep going through the files and try to extract all that we can know from what we've been given. But it is an interesting paradox that at the same time that, um, you know, people like as diverse as, you know, RFK Jr. and David Sachs and all these people are heralding um, Elon Musk in the context of these Twitter spaces and such as the vanguard of free speech, that there is very little commentary about why this project hasn't continued if it is so important. It, it reminds me a little of Democrats and Joe Biden loving to say, oh, we have child poverty. We did all these great things in the pandemic, and then make those policies 
time constrained and then say absolutely nothing about the fact that they just doubled child poverty. Well, if it was such a wonderful thing that you did that you were crowing about and trying to get people to come out and vote for you because you did it, what does it mean now that you have so willingly and without a fight let that good thing stop? And those are some serious questions I think at some point need to be asked by some of these Twitter files journalists about what this project was and what Elon Musk's incentives are if he's unwilling to continue this really important journalistic enterprise. I, I think it's very regrettable that this what seemed like a very personal uh, a personal dispute with a, a lot of uh, with not without a lot of clear understanding of what the situation was on Elon's side with respect right. to Substack. <laughs> took down the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it, Substack is a different platform, um, a platform for long-form writing, of which does not really occur on Twitter. Um, and I, I don't think it, and he, there was some dispute as to whether Tybee was an employee of Substack, right. which wasn't really, he didn't work for Substack, the company, right. um, any more than, like, I work for Facebook and right. write long <laughs> posts there. Right. Um, and then allow a subscription kind of model. Uh, right. So that was, uh, that was unfortunate because it was really good work done in the service of transparency. Um, you know, two years ago, if you'd told I, I wouldn't have, and I'm deeply suspicious, paranoid even, of what the U.S. government is doing. The idea that the FBI was routinely talking to Twitter and saying, hey, Ukrainian intelligence would like you to take down tweets by a Canadian journalist. That would be crazy. It, and it was happening constantly. It's, it's so wild. By the way, there was some conversation about the Twitter files during the RFK Jr. Um, Twitter spaces earlier this week. And it was interesting because RFK Jr., perhaps because he has a background as a lawyer, asked Musk whether or not his lawyers advised him basically not to do it because mm. of how much exposure it gave him, how much you know liability exposure there was. And Elon said, well, yes, they advised me not to do it, but I, you know, I, I did it anyway. And to me, what I, the really interesting follow-up question would have been, well, there's one level of liability when you expose what happened before you took over the company, and there's a different level of risk. I think the, the kind of risk that RFK Jr. was painting is very heroic, mm -hmm. that only accrues when you're talking about the company that you are now managing. And that, no one really plumbed that mismatch of all of the credit RFK Jr. was giving to Elon Musk, which I think is due up into a point, but then the failure to continue to have that level of transparency and disclosure. And RFK Jr. also mentioned that there was some Section 230 conversation, and he mentioned that you know he thinks it's important and these protections need to exist, but also that when organizations, when platforms start behaving like editors, then that changes the dynamic, and that really transparency is an important part of why public, you know, editor, you know, platforms that are not publishers should be allowed to be free of some of the um, liabilities that uh, that traditional publishers face. But without that transparency, without being willing to show what your algorithms are doing and, mm -hmm. and how you're making these decisions and really proving that you're not putting your thumb on the scale and just hosting information, that maybe there is, there is a, a room for some liability there. Yeah, I mean, that... Schellenberger has made that point on our show a couple times with respect to transparency. The issue I have with that is... They're always going to have their thumb on the scale in some way, right? Unless it's just literally a chronological feed of everything that appears. Like there is Facebook's news feed, for instance, like has to make algorithmically derived uh, derive choices of what to show you. I mean, or you can you can 
click the option for just a chronological yeah. feed, but it's trying to show you things that are more relevant to your interests. But it's not that you're not allowed to have an algorithm, but an algorithm that says, you know, when you, when you open up Twitter, when you right. sign in or you sign into Facebook, it'll say, what are you interested in? Sports, education, entertainment, blah, blah, blah. You click your options, and then the algorithm can continue to build on the choices that you make as you click, like, share content. Right. I think having an al transparency and saying my algorithm follows your interests based on what you do and what you select is a perfectly legitimate alg 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 algorithm. What people are concerned about is algorithms that do things like try to push conflict content, um, fight videos, the kinds of things that people have observed are more prevalent now on Twitter. Or as Elon Musk has said, he is he's admitted to wanting to put a better balance of both right-wing and left-wing content in your feed, right. regardless of what your personal choices are. So if at that point you're curating people's feed along ideological lines, are you then something closer to a publisher and should you be willing, should you be able to take the benefit of the Section 230 protections? Right. That's the debate. And conservatives for a long time, a lot of them had said no, I think very short-sightedly, because um, getting rid of those predictions would take down Twitter as it exists now, right? They rely on those predict uh, those protections. Um, well, or you can have transparency, and you can show your algorithms, and you can undo whatever it is that you might be doing that is trying to ideologically skew what is supposed to be just a platform. Right, but all all choices are ultimately ideological. Like, what counts as sport? Even like, what are your interests? What count? Well, I like sport. Well, what? How is the algorithm deciding what sports content is? How is it deciding all of those things? Like those are all what I'm saying is those are all choices that get programmed into the algorithm, and someone will object to it no matter how it is. I don't think it's quite quite that simple. I think that algorithms that are based on your selection preferences are very a very different thing than what Elon Musk has literally admitted to, which is trying to make an ideological skew on the website. But that's a, that's a much longer conversation. We should definitely get some more Section 230 types into debate, and we'll have a rising for you right after this. You may have noticed how hazy things are outside. A wildfire across Canada has sent smoke pouring into the eastern United States. Officials are warning that Americans, uh, are warning Americans not to spend too much time outside. News Nation has the report. Let's watch. Smoke from Canadian wildfires is creating hazy days and health alerts here in the U.S. This video from Manhattan shows why the city remains under air quality alerts again this morning. New York City officials urging residents with any health issues to limit outdoor activities unless absolutely necessary. Our Dre Clark live in New York City with the very latest. Dre, good morning. Kelly, good morning. You know, if you're waking up in cities like Baltimore, Boston, or Philadelphia, you may be seeing or smelling smoke. New York City now has the third worst air quality in the world. This according to IQ Air, which monitors air quality globally. Detroit is now listed at number two. Heavy winds are now pushing smoke from those wildfires in Canada south into the U.S. here. Almost the entire state of New York and most of the northeast region of the country is now covered with the haze of very unhealthy air affecting millions of people. Uh, take a look here, parts of New York City, the skyline yesterday were barely visible as the smoke moved in, covering the city with that heavy haze. Traffic on bridges coming into the city, slowing down almost to a crawl at times as visibility slowly diminished.
diminished. This video taken at a Yankees game last night, coming up here in a moment, showing the smoky overcast right there. Still, the game went on. New Yorkers also warned yesterday the air quality for the city was considered very unhealthy, especially for those with breathing issues or heart problems. 17 states across the country, mostly in the Northeast and parts of the Midwest, have now issued air quality alerts. The American Lung Association saying, if you can see and smell the smoke, consider yourself exposed. Hmm. Yeah, we're here in D.C. Uh, I noticed it yesterday. I was on a scooter, of course, coming uh, back home from an event, and I started um, coughing, like, out of nowhere. I just started coughing and coughing and coughing, and I couldn't stop. And I was like, what is going on? I was worried I was getting ill, as I do from time to time. Was, <laughs> You're going to be very upset with me when I sat down in the chair. You'd be like, he has COVID again. Uh, but I felt fine otherwise, and then I saw the report, and I'm like, oh, that's it. Um, and then, yeah, sure enough, this morning, as the sun was rising, I get a lot of natural sunlight in my apartment in the mornings, and it did have this very, very odd haze about it. Yeah, well, this so is— So you can tell. This is being caused by these uh, wildfires in Canada that have been burning for a month. They've been burning through the equivalent of 5 million football fields. That's the scope of the number of, of hectares Five of— 5 million? 6.6 million acres is the amount of burn that's been happening. Um, it's been happening for about a month, but the— uh, fires apparently uh, intensified, and a state of emergency was called in Alberta on May 4th. There are apparently more than 400 active fires, with almost 250 deemed to be out of control. As the report mentioned, this is affecting most of the northeast United States through the Midwest. Detroit was the second worst air quality in the world right now. We're used to seeing these kinds of reports out of places like India. I was on a trip there some years ago for a wedding, and the day after I left, there was a horrible air quality warning in places where I had just been. You couldn't see across the reflecting pool and then the photos of the, my other friends who were still in the area. Wow. And it's, it's, it's horrific to look at, but not something that we are used to having, experience, uh, having to experience in the United States. And it is an incredible warning of things that might come, potentially, that we continue to have bad wildfire seasons. Californians have been used to this sort of thing happening for years. The question is, and this is a debate that is now emerging, is how much does this have to do with climate change, if at all? Right, right. Um, there is a debate over extreme weather related to climate change. Um, many people say that extreme weather has gotten more common because of climate change. There's also some skepticism to that, and also some, you know, despite having more extreme weather events um, because of technological change, fewer people die as the result of extreme weather, earthquakes, hurricanes, et cetera, um, in modern times than used to because of the technological advantages, which have then generated some of the climate change issues. So. It's uh, that's the debate over how to handle it. Um, so, so specifically, the concern is that a shorter uh, rainy season, less snow cover, et cetera, has created drier uh, ground conditions than typically exist, which is contributing to the spread. Um, you know, and there are enormous economic consequences to these kinds of events as well. And some people perhaps cynically argue that it's not going to be uh, an interest in public health that is going to change public behavior here and have people more attentive to uh, climate change issues. But the sheer fact that so many millions of acres are being burned down, so many humans are, are dedicated to trying to control this. I'm sure 
there are farms and homes and the like that are caught in the wake. And are the costs eventually going to be so immediate as opposed to this abstraction in the future, we're not going to, be able to do X, Y, and Z, that someone actually does something about it. Mm. It's also worth noting that uh, Eric Adams, at least in New York, is recommending that people who have any health problems, any respiratory problems, asthma stay and the indoors. like, stay indoors, but also wear high quality masks outside, either a KN95 or an N95 mask. I saw mask. more people um, than I usually see at this time of, uh, at this time in the pandemic and this time of the post-pandemic, there were people outdoors uh, today wearing uh, wearing masks. I think the good news for you know those of us in the D.C., Philadelphia, um, uh, Baltimore area is that it looks like it should pass over the next few days, and they're expecting better conditions by the weekend. Obviously, if the fires continue to burn out of control, we could get hit with another um, gust of dangerous smoke in the future. But um, it sounds like we're not in for. Too many more days of this. Yeah, That's well, stay crazy. safe in the interim. Uh, maybe mask up, and we'll have more rising for you after this. Former United States Attorney General Bill Barr reportedly told the Federalist that Representative Jamie Raskin lied about the Biden family corruption investigation. Raskin claimed that Barr ended an investigation into a source uh, into a source's accusation that Biden agreed to a million dollar bribe, according to the Federalist. Barr said it's not true. It wasn't closed down. On the contrary, it was sent to Delaware for further investigation. Raskin reportedly said what I learned was that Attorney General Barr named Scott Brady, who was the U.S. attorney for Western Pennsylvania, to head up a group of prosecutors who would look into all the allegations related to Ukraine. And after Rudy Giuliani surfaced these allegations, Brady's team looked into the FD-1023 in August, determined that there was no grounds to escalate from an initial assessment to a preliminary investigation, and so they called an end to the investigation. So recall that this has been kind of Raskin's um, um, line on this dispute between FBI Director Christopher Wray and Representative James Comer. James Comer has sought to make this document public. The FBI said, no, we can't do that. There's been a fight over subpoena, contempt, that kind of stuff. Finally, FBI Director Ray said, well, okay, you can see the document and Raskin can see the document. And Comer has said, great, but also I still want everyone to be able to see the document. Raskin has said, if there was a there there, the Trump administration and Bill Barr, when this first came to light, would have done something about it, but they did nothing about it. So that shows you that they really didn't think there was anything to it. So the, the news here is Bill Barr is pushing back against that, telling the Federalists that the idea that we didn't do anything about it is just is not true. We referred it for investigation. We gave it to a team. Now, that team, it seems, based on what Raskin is saying, ultimately did nothing with it. But that's a little bit different than Bill Barr saying that Bill Barr like looked at this and said there's nothing to it. Sure. I, I, I get that. But it does feel like a distinction without, without a difference. If ultimately it was it was enough to investigate it somewhat, somewhat more, but then they did investigate it and there was nothing there. If anything, that does seem to shore up Raskin's claim that there wasn't anything there. Oh, you investigated it even more and you still didn't find anything. Well, I think what you I, escalated I, it and you still didn't find anything. Well, I, I think what conservatives will wonder is, you know, every person further removed from Bill Barr, um, who is who is this person and who are the team and who are the investigators and are they actually motivated to bring Joe Biden to justice if that's what's called for? Um, 
Uh, frankly, there are, I mean, there are many conservatives who feel betrayed by Bill Barr himself without getting into all of that over election stuff. And, and he, is, he is, I think, among people on the right, not actually seen necessarily as someone uh, who was sufficiently motivated but, but the, This is Trump, the problem. But. We're talking about actions that took place in a Trump Justice Department. Right. Then Trump turns around, as he is wont to do, and criticizes all the people that he hires, he oversaw, and who he put in charge because they didn't come to the conclusion that he is right in all things and that Biden is wrong in all things. I am no fan of Joe Biden. I think that it is clear that, at very least, there was untoward, nepotistic-style behavior happening with his son in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. However, at a certain point, it cannot be the case that our conclusions are always being driven by, well, this hurts Trump or this doesn't hurt Biden, therefore X, Y, and Z person must be corrupt. And it's a difficult argument to make because there obviously is so much politicization on both sides around all of these sorts of issues. But at this point, we're talking about a Trump Justice Department, Trump, former Trump acolytes who made the decision not to continue investigating something because there was no there there. And, I, and it, it's not clear what, in fact, will be satisfactory to people at this at this point, satisfactory to Trump supporters. And, and frankly, they're pushing so hard to make this document public. At a certain point, I really hope this is the is the as the smoking gun they're looking for, because they've made such a big deal out of the concealment of the document that if there's anything short of a videotape transcript in the document of Biden saying, gosh, I love doing all this corruption with my son, they're going to have egg on their face. Sure. And this is, to my mind, the best criticism of Trump and the, the one I think more people pursuing the Republican nomination should lead with when talking to his supporters and followers. If anything can possibly break them of their worship, maybe nothing can, but you need to point out that he did not drain any swamp. He did not so much of the of wrongdoing that happened with respect to uh, free speech and law enforcement and foreign policy, Trump's agenda being thwarted, conservatives not being heard or being silenced. So much of it was happening while Trump was in office. He didn't do anything about it. He 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 did not pick the best people. He did not pick people who were going to correct these problems. Business went on as usual, if not outright accelerating in its violations of civil liberties and free speech. Um, and no one noticed or cared until it affected Trump himself. And you might like what he says, but you should care about what he does. And his lack of competence, his incaution with documents, as I keep phrasing it, matters because you want someone to actually get the job done, yeah. accomplish these, these principles. And he, I think he, he should have already demonstrated to you that he's not that person because yeah. it all happened under his watch. Yes, and his vulnerabilities are what they are. Like, take someone like Joe Biden. There's nothing intrinsically problematic about slurring your words or being gaff prone. In the grand scheme of things, if there was an amazing candidate who told awkward stories from time to time, but who fought for the working class, I would be like, why are you talking so much about these gaffes or the fact that he tripped and fell or whatever? Mm -hmm. The problem with Biden is that he's not that amazing candidate. And what you have left with is someone who 
is already going to have a tough time at it and has all these built-in vulnerabilities. And Trump is getting to a place where, okay, the vulnerabilities are what they are. And now you have a choice not to erase those vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. You already have the prosecutions against you, the indictments. It's happening. But what you do have an opportunity to do is continue to show people why they should like you anyway. Right. And I'm concerned that if he keeps pressing on these issues where the, it, he seems to be losing ground and losing opportunities to cast himself as a victim without balancing that out with continuing to remind people why they like him in the first place. The, I would argue, faux populist, but regardless, populist rhetoric that he deployed in 2016, talking about all the ways that neoliberalism and late-stage capitalism have failed Americans. Trade deals, NAFTA, jobs moved overseas, blah, 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 talking about how strong his economy was when he was president. That is what he could do to balance out the negativity from some of these stories, at the same time that he still just has the veneer of having been politically prosecuted. Mm. But it, when it becomes his entire focus, I worry that he's going to start losing ground. Well, as we said yesterday, we covered developments into the GOP House Oversight's investigation into alleged Biden family corruption. And since then, there's been a temper tantrum on the mainstream media. Let's watch. But all these things about, like, the Biden crime family, this, that, the other, they keep pushing and they keep finding absolutely nothing. And it ends up, at the end of the day, just being an embarrassment for them. And as Caddy said... Most Americans just don't care about this unless you're the wife of a Supreme Court justice that's talking about putting the Biden crime family on barges outside of Gitmo. I don't know if Jimmy, Ginny Thomas is literally the only person on earth who cares about alleged improper behavior by the Biden family. Meanwhile, MSNBC also questioned House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries on the family, the investigations into the Biden family. We heard from Congressman Comer in recent days uh, disregarding, uh, you know, what he said, you know, making clear that polls are what's driving some of this investigation. And now an effort from some Republicans to hold the FBI director in contempt. Can we get you to weigh in on that, sir? Well, I think what we've seen is that individuals who pretend to be a party of law and order are really just a party of lawlessness and disorder. Joe's done a great job of pointing this out you know, every step of the way. These are people who supported a violent insurrection where there was an assault not just on the Capitol, but on Capitol police officers. And they refused to recognize their service, their bravery, their valor. So this is just part of that lawlessness and disorder that I think we've seen uh, coming from far too many extreme MAGA Republicans on the other side of the aisle. They, they want to defund the FBI. They want to investigate FBI agents. Now they want to hold the FBI director in contempt. By the way, an FBI director that was appointed, nominated by Donald Trump. And Democratic Representative Dan Goldman weighed in on the allegation that the FBI has information showing that Biden engaged in corruption as VP. This is complete garbage. And if you don't have to take my word for it, because the Trump DOJ, as you just said, looked into this specific document and they determined that it was not worth pursuing these allegations. This is a complete nothing burger that they are trying to launder through official committees of Congress once again in order to politically harm President Biden. There is nothing here. There is no merit to any of this. And there is no reason to pursue contempt of Congress charge. So 
Again, and, and uh, the previous, that was Hakeem Jeffries, didn't, did say one thing, again, I agreed with, and the, my previous comments are geared to that. Yes, the one who appointed Christopher Wray was Donald Trump. Yeah. In fact, I saw some Trump people try to go after DeSantis for Christopher Wray because, like, oh, DeSantis supported Chris, or like had, had, had made a nice statement at the time about the job Christopher Wray will do. And they actually implied that he had voted for Christopher Wray, but he, he didn't because he was in the House, not a senator. And, uh, and, and also, he, right, he put out a nice statement. Yeah, I hope Christopher Wray does a good job. Trump appointed him. Mm -hmm. Trump appointed him. Mm -hmm. it, it's so absurd. But... That, that aside, I, we could, we, we've done a lot of uh, Trump criticism in this uh, in our in our remarks here. Look, if there's nothing, maybe there's nothing to it. I'm willing to believe that, or it was oversold, fine. But the secrecy with which the FBI has proceeded um, is, is raising, is making people, I, I think, giving reasonable concerns. What, what's let's the just secrecy see it. Let's exactly? Just it. Let's just see the document. They said we can't see the document. If we can't see it because an investigation's ongoing, then say that. Here, but they said that. But now they're saying there's nothing there. So then, why can't we see it? It's worth noting that people are going to have to square this belief that if you, you know, if you if you haven't done anything wrong, you should be willing to show me everything about your That's life. That's what the government says to us. Right. But when the government said that to Matt Taibbi, when they tried to coerce him, uh, when the when the IRS tried to coerce him after he made his statements before Congress about the Twitter files, we all recognize that that was an invasion, that it's intimidation, that it's improper. It's not an invasion to make the government reveal themselves. No, you're asking them to reveal financial information about private citizens, like Hunter Biden, who is a private citizen, and potentially the president of the United States of America. There was a, um, uh, there was an effort to make, uh, pass a rule that made uh, uh, presidents have to disclose their tax forms that was struck down as unconstitutional because you can't add additional requirements to the presidency outside of what's already been written well, in the Constitution. In his years role old, as president and vice president, this concerns behavior during his vice president, he is not entitled to privacy the way that a regular citizen or Matt Taibbi or even course, Hunter Biden but, should be, in my view. But of course you are in part. For example, presidents to various degrees make their medical information available. Now they can take a political hit for not telling more about their medical information, but they make they make different decisions based on different presidencies. Trump was notoriously cagey in, dis, in non-disclosing about his medical information. Do, um, uh, Joe Biden is giving less access, I just read in an article, than presidents have done in the past. People were very frustrated with Bernie Sanders because they perceived him to not be giving enough well, sure, information. So that's the reality. His... What we're saying is, is that proper? And I'm saying no. Yeah, I, I, I think that everyone has a vulnerability to, if you investigate them to the ends of the earth, you're going to find something that you can make political hay out of. And just as J Donald Trump is frustrated frustrated that laws that are relatively kind of neutral on their face, he perceives them being weaponized against him to find out dirt about him, to, to smear him in the media. Of course, the same as can be true of Joe Biden. And people who are very, very mad about Donald Trump being politically prosecuted and who are very, very mad about Matt Taibbi being politically prosecuted, having none of the same insight when it comes to Hunter Biden, it's a little bizarre to me. I think it's good to have an investigation. I don't think these people should be getting away with breaking the law. But if there was literally an FBI investigation that Comer saw, Comer's not even, remember we talked about this yesterday. It's not like Comer saying, oh my God, there's these really important red herrings on this document that the world needs to see. There does seem to be something unrelated to an actual criminal allegation that they want to expose for the sake of generating a news cycle that's not actually geared toward anything that could be lead to a prosecution. So why is that? And why are we 
if, if we're nipping at, at the heels of that agenda, if we're advancing that agenda and saying that's a good thing to do, I think people are going to have to square that principally with their obvious distaste for the IRS, federal institutions, making witch hunt out of people like Matt Taibbi and Donald Trump. Right, making, I, I, I'm against the IRS witch hunting non-governmental citizens. Hunter Biden. People in, sure, but this is different. We were talking about this is, a, this is the actual sitting president of the United States. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Rights campaign officially declared a state of emergency for LGBTQ people living in the United States, citing a rash of bills across state legislatures they say target the community. This comes as violence erupted during a protest outside a meeting of the Glendale Unified School District Board in California, which voted to recognize June as Pride Month yesterday. LGBTQ activists accused accounts like libs of TikTok of encouraging violence against the community, quote, they're just straight up endorsing mass shootings at schools that feature pride colors right at the top of the replies, thanks to Twitter blue. That was in response, um, I think that was... Uh, a specific tweet yeah, that to was a, not a good tweet. Yeah, it was a tweet that did it exactly bad. that. So when asked, you know, what, what are we going to do about this? And the response from someone who was anti the Pride Month designation wrote, um, uh, you know, can you spell AK-47? Or something something that very much explicit, alluded to the idea that the, the, the way to respond to this is to do a, a mass shooting at a school. Sure, that was, yeah, very bad tweet. Uh, a lot of edgy, um, bad, violent rhetoric evoking content on Twitter in all sorts of directions. Um, I don't know that that would be enough for me to label something a crisis, but as I've said many times, I object to many of these bills because I don't think it's really the government's um, job to inject itself into these controversies um, in general. So, you know, with Republicans who support them are also creating some headaches for themselves down the road with, you know, the bill bans on drag performances are all going to get overturned by courts and well, Robbie, those kinds of things. First of all, you, you don't know that. Some of these bills are actually getting passed. Um, no, I, I, they're getting passed, but they're going to be. Okay, so in the interim, people should go without their constitutional rights while it works its way through the courts? Is that what I said? Well, what are you saying? Why don't you clarify? I'm saying that these bills are bad ideas and are unconstitutional. I mean, I don't I haven't read every single one of them, but... Many of them are unconstitutional and will likely be struck down by courts. Right. And I think a lot of people are concerned that hoping that a right-leaning Supreme Court, which has ignored precedent in recent history and overturned Roe v. Wade, isn't much of a comfort, especially since in the interim, people's rights are being abridged in pretty significant ways. So some other people have reported, um, the Washington Post reported, that the Proud Boy members were among the anti-LGBTQ um, uh, protesters in Glendale. There is uh, an argument that this is not organic opposition. This wasn't about teachers and a school board. These were outside agitators who came in um, trying to be disruptive. There were accusations from both sides that the police were working to help the other side, perhaps predictably so. The, you can't accuse the U.S. government in general of going leniently on the Proud Boys as an organization. Uh, many of their leaders being prosecuted, uh, one of the Proud Boys leaders being prosecuted for conspiracy, which was just yeah, the, the sentenced, right? The accusation isn't that the U.S. government is doing it. The accusation is that there are 
many police officers who have been pictured with various Nazi tattoos or insignia like the Punisher logo mm -hmm. that suggest a, a, a alliance or leaning toward more right-wing ideologies and that they make a choice. They make choices to intervene in these kind of disputes on the side of the more conservative actor. That's the allegation, not that it's the government intervening. Right. I mean, that might be the case. Again, law enforcement has arrested the Proud Boys leader, Enrique Tarrio. Um, he's guilty of seditious conspiracy and is facing, I think, 18 years or something like that? Yeah, so back to this conflict, Ian Miles Chung, um, a notorious, you know, a very well-known um, right-wing commentator on Twitter, tweeted, what should be done about teachers, doctors, and psychologists who promote, enable, or perform gender-affirming care? Um, one of the responses was, kill them. This is in line with the first tweet that, from Liz Not a response from Ian Miles no, Chung. No, no, a response to him was, kill them, the libs of TikTok tweeted, we talked about this earlier, imagine walking to your elementary school and this is what greets you, what do you do? It's a picture of kids sitting under a rainbow. And that response was, what is mass shooting for 500, Pat? A Jeopardy yeah. joke, I suppose. Um, you know, Content another- Content that promotes violent uh, behavior should be taken down from the Yeah, side. another response to that same Ian Miles Chong tweet was, uh, to what, what should we do about this you know, problem? Uh, is someone with a blue check mark saying helicopter, wood chipper, compost in that order, suggesting that you should um, chop up and compost people who have these ideological disagreements. Um, Tim Pool tweeted, the dads are starting to rise up against leftist pedophiles. This characterization um, that people have said is provoking violence. If you really believe that it's what's happening with pedophilia, maybe you feel entitled to kill the people that you think are doing that to children. And of course, one of the responses, another blue check response is, I don't care how it looks or sounds, I salivate at this, groomers deserve violence, and that's exactly what they're getting. So the question is, at some point, are there going to be, is there gonna be legal liability for people who are very much stoking the violence on Twitter? And elsewhere, is Twitter going to become responsible? Do they have an obligation to curb any of the content that's an explicit call to violence, the likes of which Explicit I, I calls read. to violence are uh, against the policies of Twitter and all other social media sites, and they should absolutely take down such content. It doesn't look like it's happened so far, though. So what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, content, we, as we know from content moderation, it's always uneven and uh, there's lots of cases where things get taken down that shouldn't have been taken down and things get left up that should have been left up. I don't know that it has, shows anything of anything, but it should certainly be taken down. Call Explicit calls to violence should be reported. Anybody can report them. You can report it. Yeah, they've been, I mean, very high profile accounts like Alejandro Carballo, who we've both disagreed with in the past, have been quoting, screen grabbing, and raising these tweets, particularly those of Tim Pool. Remember Tim Pool was Well, I recently... don't think Tim Pool, I'm not saying that Tim Pool's account should be taken down. I'm saying that those, you were reading people who were responding well, no. to him with calls for violence. Well, Sure. Well, she's pointed out, Alejandra has pointed out that Tim Pool, this is a quote from her from a few hours ago, was openly justifying the Club Q shooting. The Allen, Texas Nazi shooter was a fan of his. That's not his fault necessarily, but it's, a, it's true. And she's alleging that he's inciting violence. And she specifically pulled up a tweet of his from November last year saying, we shouldn't tolerate pedophiles grooming kids. Club Q had a grooming event. How do we prevent the violence and stop the grooming? And it is hard, regardless if you think there should be a censorship or content moderation decision made about him, it's hard not to see the connection between that kind of language. You know, how do we stop this? The people who are saying this now about this conflict outside the Glendale school system, how do we stop I mean, this? They, and all of the people who are responding, we stop it with violence. I, I think that those people want to stop it with 
precisely the legislation that you are calling attention to, well, not with violence, but with changes to the law that prevent drag performances in front of minors and let's, transitioning let's, let's stuff for kids. Let's stick with what's happening kids. right here. I, mean, that, that, that's, I think that's the But no, but what's happened right here is that a school board voted. There's been school boards that have done conservative votes all across this country, and that's just the democratic process and what happens. For sure. This school board voted to recognize June as Pride Month. Sure thing. And as a consequence, it seems like Proud Boys and other conservative agitators, some of which are not actually local to this community, have come in and participated in a violent mob thug event. And the question is, are the people who have been um, critical of violent, disruptive events in the past when they were not ideologically aligned with them, going to have an issue with a bunch of Proud Boy right-wing thugs starting a violent altercation outside of a school where people's children have to go and arrest learn every day. People engaged in violence at events should be arrested and prosecuted and should face whatever the relevant uh, punishment is under the criminal justice system, as have, as I said, many of the Proud Boys, including their senior leadership, with respect to other violent riots that took place, including at the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, this thing was really outrageous. Apparently, there's a video that was posted of some far-right people who are being characterized, at least as far-right extremists, pepper spraying a religious clergy member who was there in support of the LGBTQ families. I think it's worth noting that this is such a... I mean, I, many of us, I, probably, I think, probably thought June being Pride Month is one of the less controversial types of things that could exist. Um, I mean, we saw all kinds of backlash, including some violent backlash, when there was an effort to um, name February Black History Month. This certainly isn't novel. But with the passing of history, most of us look back and say that that's a kind of a bizarre reaction to simply labeling a month celebrating a group of people that do exist in the country and, and who have a right to have certain as a certain kind of recognition. You know, do you think this is evidence of any kind of jumping of the shark on the behalf of the Republican Party? And do you think that folks like DeSantis, who have really made their bones in the culture wars, are going to be forced by incidents like this to walk it back at all? I mean, I think there's a huge, there's a backlash going on to um, some of the excesses of trans gender-related issues, and I think that is being used as a kind of—that um, um, is allowing um, a greater criticism of, uh, of LGB stuff more generally. It's, like, broadening into a general criticism of pride that's being, like, laundered through concern about gender stuff and concern about children. But I do think a lot of the people involved in making those criticisms actually just they object to LGBT content regardless of the age of people involved, and even if it's not just gender stuff but also sexuality stuff, probably all probably objected all along and were just quiet about it because at the political moments the anti-LGBT equality side has been on the defensive and has been losing for years and years and years, or more people are... Uh, we can all, you know, we all know the poll numbers that people are strongly in favor, majorities of people are in favor of gay marriage and non-discrimination and such things, mm -hmm. uh, it feels like it's reaching some kind of tipping point of, of backsliding. Um, perhaps, but perhaps that's just us looking at social media, a platform that has suddenly become very right-wing, Twitter. Um, or perhaps, you know, perhaps it suggests that um, people, activists on behalf of the LGBT community, 
should reorient their tactics to inspire less backlash, um, or maybe there's going to be a backlash to the to the conservative backlash against pride and the kind of like sweeping denunciation of everybody as groomers that I think probably tunes out normal people. Normal people are probably like, what the F is a groomer? Um, yeah. Again, I'm not speaking for myself. I'm just trying to diagnose the, uh, the, the medium. I think everybody should leave everybody else alone. And if you don't agree with how people are raising their kids or whatever, that's just like none of your responsibility, none of your problem. And just mind your own business yeah, is uh, my general and the government should leave everybody alone. And then wouldn't we be a happier, um, not at each other's throats kind of society, Brianna? Just let the government leave everybody alone. Yeah, you know, I can't endorse that entirely because I think the role of government is to uh, do a lot of things that can't be uh, reduced to localities, including keeping a standing army, including mass infrastructure projects, uh, including looking out for the health and welfare of the country, big social justice, social safety net programs like Medicare for All and Social Security that have enormously improved the quality of life in the United States of America and for its citizens. But I do think they should stay out of people's family lives and allow parents to raise You want to have your cake like. and eat it, too. I don't know. I, I'm going to go without cake in general. Tomorrow on Rising, Jessica Burbank will be filling in for Brianna. I'm just finding this out. Uh, tomorrow you're not going to be with us. No, I'm going back to New York to attend my 20th year high school reunion. That's I'm looking exciting. forward to that. I might have to wear a mask due to air quality concerns, but it'll keep us all looking a little bit more youthful perhaps <laughs> than we otherwise would be looking. Well, have a great trip, and I'll be looking forward to having Jessica with us. And uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And I will see you back here tomorrow. Take care. Take care.